Rise and shine, you Syracuse superfans. It's time to pour yourself a tall, delicious glass of orange fizz. Syracuse recruiting news, insider information, latest SU buzz. The Syracuse blogosphere comes to life on the central New York airwaves. It's Fizz Radio. Welcome into another edition of Former Fizz. I'm your host, Jaron May, and through this interview series, I talk with previous Orange Fizz staff writers about SU sports from back when they were on the hill. Today, I have another very special guest. This guy called Syracuse home from 2015 to 2019. He was on the hill for some good days in football and some bad days in football, and the same goes with the basketball team as well. Today, I I have on the podcast Drew Carter. Drew, thanks so much for joining me. Duran, I'm glad to be here. Let's talk about some four-win football seasons and some bubble basketball teams. There you before go. we get started, we should probably we should probably explain to the listeners. Your name is Jaron. That yes. is the correct pronunciation. Yes. I call you Duran because when I met you, I saw your name was spelled J-A-R-O-N. I thought of Darren Williams, who everyone used to call Duran Williams, <laughs> and so that's how Duran was born. So for the rest of the show, you're going to be called Duran, and okay. I hope that's okay with you. Hey, I am I am absolutely okay with that, and I think the listeners are also okay with it. Uh, so let's move on with a, a couple. Let, let's just do an intro question and see where we go with that. While you were at Syracuse, and again, it's from 2015 to 2019. That's the time frame that we're working with in this interview. What sport did you enjoy most when you were on campus, basketball or football? Well, between basketball and football, I would say I had more good memories from basketball. And that's kind of the nature of being at It is a basketball school. So when I think of my favorite moments from my time at Cuse, I think of you know being at the first four in Dayton when Syracuse beat Arizona State and Tyus Battle hit one of a plethora of clutch shots to move Syracuse on. They ended up in the Sweet 16. I remember being at Cameron Indoor Stadium and you know calling Syracuse's win over Duke when no one expected us to win that game. I'm going to call them us and we because I don't go there anymore, so I don't cover them, and now I can be subjective, screw it, whatever. Um, I'm sure that's a game we can talk about in a, in a little bit. But with all that being said, I mean, football my senior year was such a highlight. It was such a blast. The entire fall, it was so much fun. And it culminated in Orlando when, you know, me and some of my best friends in the world went down and watched Syracuse win their 10th game of the season, which was basically a miracle at that point. And the confetti was falling on Camping World Stadium, and it was a blast. It was like we had won the national championship. So for the balance of my time at Syracuse, I would say basketball. But it was really, really fun that senior year to kind of watch Syracuse football revive itself in one season. All right, so let's talk about basketball then. So uh, basketball, you say, is the better of the two sports, and obviously you had some really good games, and especially that game in Cameron Indoor like you just touched on. What do you think was the best game you witnessed as a student at Syracuse? Well, Jaron, I think it's got to be it's got to be that game at Cameron because – I mean, there are so many fun elements of that memory for me. And I think it, it's the same for all Syracuse fans. When you think about that game, Syracuse had been doing this dance where they were on the bubble all four years of my college career, which is really crazy because I remember touring Syracuse and thinking this is like one of the 10 best programs in America. I asked my tour guide if he took any classes with basketball players, and he told me yes. 
he took a class with James Sutherland. I'm like, that's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> like, he's great. This team is great. Bayheim's a legend. And all that stuff is true. But my four years there, they were always on the bubble. And so when they went to Cameron, honestly, that was that was maybe the most offensively challenged team we had at my time there. And so it was mid-January, and we're, again, on the bubble, but fading pretty quickly. ACC play had started. We were not playing very well. And so we go to Cameron, and I was calling the game with Noah Eagle uh, from WAER, and it was just the two of us, and Noah gave me the choice, do, do you want to call the first half or the second half? Because the last game we had called together, I had given him the choice, that was my turn to choose, and I chose the first half because I thought we were going to get smoked. Honestly, I thought we'd get completely blown out because here's Duke. They've got Zion. They've got RJ Barrett. They've got Cam Reddish. We're going to Cameron. We suck. <laughs> we're playing on the road. Why would I think we're going to keep this game close, let alone win? So I take the first half. Out of the gate, it looks like I'm going to be right because Duke scores the first 12 points of the game. Syracuse calls timeout. Places going absolutely ballistic. And I turn to know. I'm like, bro, I told you. He's like, just wait. Just wait. Syracuse <laughs> always does this. Just when you're out, they pull you back in. And uh, lo and behold, he was right. But I, I wasn't too upset about not calling the second half because it meant I got to call Elijah Hughes 75-foot prayer at the buzzer at the end of the first half, which he nailed. And it was probably my favorite call for my time in Syracuse. I don't know if this is true, but I said it on the radio, so it must be. He the Cameron Indoor is so small and the roof is so low. He almost had to throw a curveball around the scoreboard and it looked to me like it, it really did bend in the air like the bullet in that movie wanted yeah. the ball just like bends in the air and somehow splashes and when he made that shot it's like all right we're probably gonna win this game and, and i'm about to witness something really really cool so from pregame you know being a foot away from zion watching him warm up to halftime that happening you know seeing sean mcdonough and kevin kugler in the hallway on the way to the bathroom then, like, coming back and watching Syracuse win in overtime and being there with one of my best friends, it's really hard to top that memory. So, as far as basketball goes, or really any sport, that's the best game I saw. Wow. Well, I, that sounds amazing. And you just, I, I, I can't even imagine, and I guess it's only something that you could see if you were there in person, bending that ball <laughs> around the score, uh, the, the scoreboard. So, so, that's the best game. Now let's talk about the best year and the best roster. So you're obviously there for four years as a student from 2015 to 2019, and those are four bubble years, like you said earlier. Of those four rosters, which do you think was the most talented? Well, it's funny you ask that question because, ironically, I think the most talented team was the one that missed the tournament. Um, going into that season, we were all fired up. It was our sophomore year. We were bringing in this guy, Andrew Wood, right, who I know Tyler mentioned on that podcast. And he was the he was the man at Nebraska. He started his career at Kansas. Syracuse is his third school. Everything you hear about the guy is he's an awesome teammate, really nice with the media, and he shoots like above 40% from three, and he's going to be our go-to guy. But it wasn't just him. Leiden was coming back from the Final Four team, and the expectations were through the roof for him. It's like, all right, we're going to play small ball. Leiden's going to be at the five all year. He's going to play 35 minutes a night at the center of the zone. It's going to be great. You bring in John Gillen, another grad transfer from Colorado State, and it just seemed like the team was going to be super dynamic offensively, and it, it just never clicked. But the thing is, offensively, they were fine. Defensively, they were a complete mess. And it makes sense. We should have known in hindsight that defensively, they weren't going to be very good because 
You've got too many new pieces who don't really know how to play the zone. You've got too many guys who are honestly more focused on scoring than defending when it should probably be the reverse, especially at a place like Syracuse. So there's a lot of talent, but it never really clicked. And so they ended up missing the tournament. That was the only time they did uh, during my time there. But and as far as the best team, that Final Four team was really special, man. And, and you saw flashes. That was my freshman year. You saw flashes. They win the battle for Atlantis in the non-conference portion. They get up to about 15th in the country. Then they kind of crumble because, you know, they were like, oh, well, Drew's on campus. We can't be too good. We must be on the bubble. Um, and so they sort of fall apart as the season goes on. When they lose that ACC tournament game to Pittsburgh, literally Jay Alter, who was our sports director at WAER, on, on the radio says the season's over. And that was a completely normal take to have. Like, that was educated. It was We all thought it was on point. But turns out they made the tournament, and then after that, they were basically unbeatable. They were like a buzzsaw going through the tourney. So that team was really special because, like I said, you saw the flashes at the start of the season, put it together in March, and that's kind of what makes Jim Beheim Jim Beheim. So that was a special team. Most talented was sophomore year. They missed the tournament, and then the last two were kind of similar. Not a ton of offensive talent, but just kind of grinded you down and had a little bit of success out, uh, off of that. So it seems like the the big difference between the first two years and the last two years is there was a person that was missing in the in the coaching room after those first two years. Mike Mike Hopkins left, obviously. So with his departure, obviously that hurt the recruiting, and that was his big niche in Syracuse. What were your thoughts as a student at Syracuse when Hopkins left the program? Well, my initial thought, Jerron, was (laughs) I can't blame this guy. You know, like it's been about 15 years at that point where he was the coach in waiting. And listen, as a Syracuse guy, I'm going to defend Jim Beheim, but he's never going to leave. You know, like. And there's nothing wrong with that, but he's he's one of those guys who's a lifer. Like, I think he wakes up and he thinks about basketball. He's eating lunch, he's thinking about basketball. He goes to bed, he's thinking about basketball. And if it's not basketball, it's another sport. He talks about this all the time. He's obsessed. He'll watch Sports Center until like three AM. He'll he'll tell his kid, like he'll argue with Buddy and Jimmy about, you know, who's the best player on the PGA tour right now. Like, he's just a total sports junkie. And I, I thought Hopkins maybe saw the writing on the wall and said Beheim probably won't want to stick with this succession plan. Now, that's not me with any inside info. That's just me speculating. And when a great opportunity like that comes, I think you got to jump at it. So I couldn't blame Hopkins, but it was it was really unfortunate because with with Hop there, it felt like the status quo was going to remain the same for at least 20 more years which would have been great. And everyone in Syracuse wants, you know, the zone to stay. They want the Bayheim mindset and culture to stay as long as possible. And everyone loved Hop, and they still do. He's an amazing guy. He was super nice with us when we could speak with him because assistants usually don't talk with the media. But when we did, our interactions with him were incredible. And everyone really liked him. You know, he's a former player. So it was sad when he left, but I understood why. And also, there were some questions about whether he was ready to be a head coach because they went below 500 when he coached those nine games mm-hmm. our freshman year. Um, so there were some questions, but I really liked the guy, and it was it was definitely sad when he left, but also happy for him. And I, I know me personally, and I can speak for most of my friends here too, 
we root for Washington. That's like our number two college team. We really like watching yeah. the Huskies. There was one game where uh, they were playing a late-night Pac-12 game. I'm sure one of my friends had money on it. And uh, <laughs> we're watching this game in our living room our junior year, and Washington hits a buzzer beater three to win, and we just lose our mind. I still have the video on my phone. It was just it was a cool moment because Washington became like our second favorite team just because of Hopkins. That's how much we like the guy. So happy for him, but upset that he left Syracuse. So Hopkins out and obviously upsetting for you, but Bayheim has been there for a while now. And obviously yeah. everyone knows about the Jim Bayheim with the media stories, but you personally, do you have any classic Jim Bayheim stories? Yeah, there's one that I, uh, I'd rather not tell. <laughs> he, uh, he actually really roasted uh, one of our classmates, but I uh, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. Um, let's see. Bayheim classic story. I never really got torched by him. I never even really bothered. <laughs> but I'll uh, I'll flip this to Ron. I'll go positive on you. I got a chance to interview him one-on-one uh, before our senior year hoops. We did a basketball preview show for our TV station, Citrus TV. And I was lucky enough to interview Bayheim. And so I was really nervous because I went up to Pete Moore, the uh, basketball SID, sports information director, who the media interacts with. And I was like, are we good to grab Bayheim after his uh, press conference? Because that's what we did every year with Citrus. We had an agreement with them. And Pete was like, uh, no, no, we're not doing that. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I've been, I've been preparing for this for two months to interview Jim Bayheim. You got to be kidding me. Um, and Pete was like, well, well, we'll see what we can do. Like, we'll ask him afterward and we'll see what he, we'll see what he says. And so we did, and it, he was so nice, man. He was he was very inviting. He was very warm. And uh, he was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So we walked over to the other side of the practice gym at Mellow, and we did the interview, and it was good. And another thing that happened during that interview is we realized three minutes in that the camera wasn't recording. <laughs> so what do you do in that situation? You've got a bunch of students. You're sitting here with Tim Beheim, who is, like, wearing the crown in Syracuse and has been for the last two decades. What do you do? Do you say anything or do you just like hit the record button and try to, you know, piece it together afterward? What do you do? And so we decided to stop the interview, tell everyone what had happened and restart. And Beheim was cool about it. I actually think it was maybe a little refreshing for him to be with some students who, you know, we weren't going to try to ask him any tough questions, to be honest with you. We were just happy to be there. And so I think that might be why he was in a good mood. But He's not he's not as bad as it seems with the media. You know, if you catch him after a loss and you ask him a question that makes him feel like you're preaching to him or you're telling him how to coach, he's going to bristle at that, and understandably so. But you've got to appreciate that, A, he's not always like that. If you get him in a one-on-one -on -one scenario, he's usually pretty good. And, B, he keeps it real. I'd rather hear what the coach actually thinks than coach speak for 20 minutes in a presser does he go a little too far sometimes? Yeah, sure. But the best quotes he gives are when he's ripping people. <laughs> the iconic quotes of Jim Beheim are, we wouldn't have won 10 bleeping games without Jerry McNamara. You think he's overrated. You know, all these rants about Ron Patterson and et cetera, et cetera. That's when Beheim, I think, is at his best and his most entertaining. So I don't have an issue with him with the media, and my interactions with him were actually pretty good. Wow. All right. Well, uh, hey, that's still a good story of the whole – the whole camera not being on, yes. um, and yes. that's—it seems like that would have been a time where he would have gotten mad. But that's a—that's—that's that's 
absolutely amazing. Um, but I have one last basketball question before we switch over to the football side of things. And I asked all my guests so far this, this same question. If you could put together a starting five with players just from when you were on campus, who would be in that starting five and why? All right, so actually I listened to Tyler's episode and – I'm kind of in, in a pinch here because, Jerron, you interviewed him first. Right. So I don't want to just, you know, copy his five, but his five is pretty good. I mean, you know, Tyler is a smart guy and he, he knows what he's talking about. So here's the thing, Jerron, since the centers were so bad during our time at Syracuse, what I'm going to do is just eschew the position entirely. And we're just going to play pure small ball. Cool. And I'm sure if, you know, if any coach heard my starting five, they just laugh me out of the room. But you know what? Our centers were so bad, I'm just going for it. So our guards at the top of the zone, we're going with Michael Benajay. We're going with Trevor Cooney. Benajay is an easy answer. Mr. Consistency, double figures, I think, in every game his senior year, leader of a team that made the Final Four, easy money. He's my point guard. Going with Cooney because, yes, he's streaky, but when he catches fire, he's really good. And by the time he was a senior at Syracuse, he was fantastic in the zone. And I want to keep those two guys together because they've played together. They know how to play the zone together. They menace people at the top of the zone. So Benajay and Cooney at the top. On the wings, Tyus Battle for sure. And let's see between Malachi and Andrew White. I'm going to go I'm gonna go Malachi. Same reason as Tyler. Higher ceiling, uh, probably a more talented guy, less consistency, but I want a, a guy who can kind of catch fire. What we saw against Virginia in the second half of that Elite Elite Eight game, White could probably never get there. So we've got Benajay, we've got Cooney, we've got Tyus, we've got Malachi at the five. Why not? Give me Elijah Hughes, man. Let's see what you got. <laughs> let's let's see you box out, Elijah. He's what, like six six, six seven? He can handle it. Wow. Because I could put I could put Tyler Lyde in there, but honestly, I'm so I'm so fed up with the centers we saw at Syracuse. I just don't want that position. So I'm just gonna take three wings. And hopefully they can figure it out. Wow! All right, hey, that's a it's you said small ball, and that absolutely is small ball. Yes. Uh, yes. But we're halfway through here on former Fizz with Drew Carter, and let's switch over to the football side of things, and let's kind of give the lay of the land again. Who are some of the standout players you remember while you were a student on the football field? I think the best individual season anyone put together on offense, it would be Ambed Atawo, a receiver who transferred from Maryland, zero fanfare, pretty good combine guy with like good measurables and pretty fast, but just had not produced. And so he got to Syracuse and no one even really knew his name. He was one of those guys who like, you know, we would cover at the fizz because you know, we'll cover everything. You know, we cover recruiting and guys transferring sort of falls under that umbrella, but no one had any expectations for him. And Amba rolls in and throws down like 1,500 yards and double-digit touchdowns. He's like an All-American. He was phenomenal. He could have been a Bolitnikoff Award finalist. He was so good. And so for him to kind of explode onto the scene like that, that sort of established Dino Babers as the offensive guy we kind of know him to be now. You know, his teams will put up monster numbers. They might not win a lot of games, but the stats will be pretty. And receivers, if you want to go to the league, Syracuse is a pretty good place to go because you'll put up big numbers and maybe that'll help you get drafted. So Amba's first year at Syracuse and his only year, best offensive season I saw, best defensive season was actually Andre Sisco as a freshman. Mm -hmm. um, our senior year uh, led the nation in interceptions. He was also an All-American. 
he was just incredible. And that one was cool for us because we covered his recruitment. I got a chance to interview him on signing day. Super nice guy, interesting guy. His Twitter handle was Ocho Cisco, which I was a big fan of. So we talked about that. You know, I put together a highlight video with Forgot About Dre as the music bed because it was, you know, Andre. So we had a lot of fun with that. And then he came out and he just balled. You know, he, he wins the starting job. He picks off a ton of, like, pretty much every game he had an interception. <laughs> and it was just getting more ridiculous as the season went on. So Cisco and Edatawa, best individual seasons. But, I mean, the guy for us is is Dungy. You know, mm-hmm. all four, like, he, we basically did college with Eric Dungy vicariously through covering the team because you know like Tyler said Terrell Hunt goes down game one against Rhode Island I remember sitting there you know it was like me and about a hundred of my best friends because no one was at that game we were not very good we were playing Rhode Island and so Terrell Hunt goes down Dungy comes in and from that point forward he's the starting quarterback for my entire college career and that's pretty special because I don't know how many people can say they watched the same starting quarterback all four years they were in college and Dungy man he was he was a blast to watch. You know, it wasn't the most accurate. He was a little injury prone, but that, I hesitate to even say that because he just put his body out on the line. So maybe reckless is a better yeah. word, but he's, he was such a competitor and he was so much fun to watch. And he was so great that senior year. It all kind of came together and they won 10 games and it was, it was really fun. So Dungy is the guy uh, who I remember from Syracuse football. All three of those guys were new to the program while you were on campus, and there was also a new name that came in after your freshman year, Dino Babers takes over. So as a student and as a student journalist, what was your opinion of Dino when he got that head coaching job? Well, you know, Jerron, when, like, when a girl stops dating a guy and it was a toxic relationship, the next guy she starts dating is going to be perfect almost no matter what he does. Like, as as long as he is a f- relatively good dude, she's going to think he's, like, the greatest thing since sliced bread <laughs> because of her experience with the previous one. Now, Scott Schaefer seems like a good dude, but the team was really bad under him, like, really bad. And <laughs> my freshman year, I basically got a glimpse of – the bottom of the bit, like how bad can a power five school be? Oh, it's right in front of you. And it's Syracuse because they win the first three games of the season. And it's like, wow, Syracuse has done this for the first time since like the early two thousands or whatever it was. Is this Scott Schaefer's year? Are they going to be good this year? Could they go back to a bowl game? Immediately they lose nine games in a row. So, or eight games in a row, whatever. Same thing. They go months without winning a game. And so I'm like, all right, Schaefer's going to get fired. He does before the last game of the year. They they beat, I think, Boston College on, like, a last-second field goal, carry him off the field, and carry him out of Syracuse, essentially. That's his last game. So Babers comes in, and all he had to do was not be Scott Schaefer, and we were going to be excited for him. And so he gets there, but beyond that, he he's such a, a charismatic guy. And the more you kind of talk with him and get to know him, the more it feels genuine, because... You know, man, when a, when a coach comes in his first year and he's talking about close your eyes, imagine the fastest offense, it never huddles, that's Syracuse football, that's what we're going to be. It's like, okay, well, let's let's see this happen for real, and, and then we'll start to buy in. And they only won four games his first two seasons, so you had the contingent that was anti-Dino, like, why are you guys so excited about him? They haven't really done anything yet. But the bottom line is the, the offense was very fast, like he had promised. It was fun to watch. He was fun to cover. Each of those years, they did something 
pretty spectacular. They beat Virginia Tech uh, my sophomore year at the Carrier Dome, and he delivered his first, you know, legendary post-game speech, which kind of made Syracuse football relevant again nationally. Like, I remember people on ESPN talking about Dino Babers and his post-game speech and, like, is Syracuse back? He would do the interview on ESPN, and it's like, here we go. Now we're getting that block ass back out in a national setting again. They only win four games, but that was a great moment. Then, obviously, junior year, they beat Clemson. They don't win a game afterward, but the seeds were being planted. And then it just blossomed our, our senior year. So with Dino, it was a little bit of curiosity out of the gate, but excitement at the same time. It was excitement that kind of continued and continued and built and built. And by the time senior year rolled around, we were sort of ready for that breakout, and he gave it to us. Yeah, let's let's talk about that senior year. Obviously, it's the one that stands out while you were on campus from 2015 to 2019. So walk me through being a senior after a really disappointing other three years, and then you get that final year. What were kind of your emotions, and were you hesitant to actually believe this team was going to be as good as it turned out to be? Yeah, definitely hesitant. Definitely remembering the scars from previous years, thinking, let's not get our hopes up because our hearts are going to be broken. (laughs) But I started to believe when they beat Florida State. And honestly, in hindsight, that was probably still too early because we learned that Florida State was awful and is still kind of on the downturn. But, you know, DeAndre Francois came in, FSU, it's FSU. And I remember two years ago being at the Dome when they came in and just rolled us Dalvin Cook scored four touchdowns. They obliterated us. It wasn't even close. That was old Syracuse. This is new Syracuse. And we waxed them. Like, it, it, from the jump, Syracuse was the best team on the field that day. Dungey gets injured. It doesn't even matter. Francois has no time. I think they had, like, eight or nine sacks that day. Also, the Carrier Dome was so hot. It was mid to late September. It was probably, like, 90, 95 degrees in there. <laughs> Noah and I are sweating through our suits. It's disgusting in the press box. But it's so much fun because we're sort of seeing the birth of a new era of Syracuse football. So we crushed Florida State, and that's when we were sort of talking afterward, like, is this team legit? Could they maybe do something this year? And then every win after that, you stack them up, and it's like, okay, maybe they're 4-0. And that was the one I remember, first time since 1991. They're 4-0. All right, here we go. Here's another win, another win. And here's the deal, Jerron. This might sound ridiculous, but that team was – a handful of plays away from being in playoff contention in mid-November. Seriously, like, mm-hmm. they their first loss of the season is at Pittsburgh. Syracuse was better than Pittsburgh that year. Now, Pitt ended up making the ACC championship game and getting flattened by Clemson because, you know, everyone would have. But Pittsburgh wasn't that great, and we lost in overtime at Heinz Field, a game we really should have won. So that's the first loss. Next game, at Clemson, or maybe I'm getting those two reversed. Either way. We're at Clemson. Tyler and I are down there to call that game. Not, well, Evan Foster knocks Trevor Lawrence out in the second quarter. And Syracuse led 59 minutes of that game. And this kid, Chase Bryce, who's their backup quarterback, because it's Clemson, he was a four-star. But I had, I had randomly put all these notes down about Chase Bryce in my chart because I was like, all right, well, just in case, you know, just in <laughs> case Lawrence goes down and, and we have to talk about Chase Bryce. And so I had all these notes. Davo Sweeney had compared him to Brett Favre. And so Chase Bryce comes in. I'm like, oh, awesome. Like, no one knows who this guy is, and I've got it. Chase Bryce, four-star quarterback, Brett Favre, yada, yada, yada. He comes in, 
he is not good. Chase Price is not Brett Favre, spoiler alert. And so we almost win that game, and I maintain that we should have. We outplayed Clemson in Death Valley, and we only lost because they scored on a last-minute drive. So if you win those two games, which realistically you could have, you're 6-0, and you've got a win over Clemson, which looks even better as the season goes on, and they just crush everyone they play. And you could go into Yankee Stadium against Notre Dame undefeated, and I think maybe like around number five in the nation. The team was that good, and they were that close to winning those two games against Pittsburgh and Clemson. Now, against Notre Dame, they got embarrassed. It, it was it was really a, a wake-up call like, hey, maybe this team isn't as good as you thought. It's funny how the narrative just consistently changes based on one game. Like, hey, they're better than we thought. Oh, no, they're they're not even close to as good as we thought. Oh, maybe, maybe they're pretty good. And then they play Notre Dame, and they just get worked. So, but obviously, the end, the end of the season was really fun when they won in Orlando. But that's kind of what I remember about that team is they go from laughing stock of the ACC to a couple of plays away from being a playoff team in mid-November. And uh, it was just it was cool to be along for the ride. So uh, as far as memories that stand out, I know I didn't really answer that question, but that's just kind of the vibe we were getting from that team in general. Yeah. Hey, that sounds awesome. And that's all I have for you here on another edition of Former Fizz. Drew Carter, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Jerome. All right, that wraps it up for another edition of Former Fizz. Make sure you search Orange Fizz on SoundCloud or go to orangefizz.net for all the previous and future episodes. But for now, I'm Jaron May signing off. Hopefully we'll see you next time.